363, chapters 45 and 46. Book talk begins at 2230. Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from where the Delaware River meets the Old York Road, New Hope, Pennsylvania. Episode 363, Chillin'. This episode brought to you by Survival Organs. Handmade organs to throw, love, or cuddle. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. And March Hare Yarns, hand-dyed yarns just for you. You can visit the March Hare at Etsy. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. Links to all of our sponsors can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go have a look. Well, hello. Happy New Year. (laughs) It is Rosh Hashanah and the Jewish Happy New Year. And so, Happy New Year to all of you. A time of new beginnings, a time of contemplation, and a website that my husband, I guess he heard about it on NPR and sent to me. And it is a very interesting little thing that some of you might enjoy. Now, it was designed by a Jewish woman for the 10 days in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as a time to kind of contemplate and sit and think and put things in order for the new year. Kind of a little internal housekeeping, if you will. It's a website that asks you questions every morning and you write your answer and you can keep it private or not. And, uh, and then it, this website holds those questions, the answers to those questions in its memory bank for a year. And then on a year from the date, they come back to you in your inbox and you can see what you said last year. And then you'll get new questions for that new year and it'll just keep going forever. So it's, it's kind of like those time capsule things that I know I did sometimes in school where the teacher had you write a letter to yourself at the beginning of the school year and then at the end of the school year you'd get that letter back and it's sealed envelope and see what you (laughs) see what you said to yourself way back then which was sometimes kind of difficult to read but but often very interesting and uh, and so I'm kind of curious to see how this is going to go anyway the link for this is on the show notes for episode 363 So eat some apples, dip them in some honey, give yourself a sweet new year. And if you are a quilter, let me know what needles you use. Oh, needles. I have a quilt. I have a quilt that was left to me by my childhood babysitter. Her name was Delia Hogue, H-O-U-G. And as I recall, she was... Norwegian. I guess it was kind of like a a like water for chocolate moment for those of you who have read the book. If you are so young that you do not know this book, please go read Like Water for Chocolate and then see the movie. And if you can parse the Spanish, read it in Spanish because it's a little different than the English translation. Anyway, 
In Like Water for Chocolate, the youngest daughter is tasked with not ever getting married so that she can instead take care of her mother forever. And for whatever reason, I don't, I was, I was too young to know. Hoagie, which is what I called my babysitter, she hadn't gotten married. I gather that she could have at one time, uh, didn't, wound up having to take care of her mother. And then they moved from wherever they were in the upper Midwest. I don't even know that. Maybe my mom does. Anyway, they moved to Southern California because the weather was better there. And so to California they went and escaped the ragweed, which is outside my window right now, tormenting me, (laughs) trying to make it impossible for me to breathe. But Hoagie, when I was a very small child, a very, very small child, was down the street from us. We could walk down to her house. She could walk down to mine. And so she was my babysitter. And she was round and soft and had the most perfect white, white, white hair. And she was marvelous. We had tea every afternoon. And eventually she moved from there into a transitional residence. And we had moved away from the street, so she didn't have me to look after anymore. But we would go visit her from time to time. And so when she passed, I inherited a couple of things from her. The quilt. And the quilt, as far as I can tell, was handmade. There is color. It is yellow and white. But Most of the patterning has been done by the white top stitching that's just kind of all over the place. I guess people now have those free arm sewing machines that can do incredible intricate patterning for you and stuff. This was all just kind of random and done by hand. Well, it's getting colder here and I have my fabulous knitted quilt on the bed, but it was actually so cold a few nights ago that I went to get another quilt and I pulled this one out. And on the top side, the side that has the yellow and the white, instead of just the white base for the bottom side of the quilt, there are sections where the white fabric has thinned out so much that it has torn. And I I don't know when it tore. I don't know what provoked it. I imagine it was a child. And as you also can imagine, I was horrified because here is this thing. And it's like, I'm the last one who carries the memories of Hoagie. And this was hers. And somehow that really upset me so much to see this tear. And at first I thought, oh, good Lord. Well, God knows there's enough Amish women in Pennsylvania. I should be able to find someone who can fix this. And then I thought, gosh darn it. No, if anyone's going to fix this, it should be me because it matters. And I can figure out how to patch a quilt. And so I figured it was going to be a combination of applique work, which is tedious, but it's not that big a deal. And kind of fitting whatever piece of fabric I could find under the edge of what little amounts of edge I can tuck it under because that top stitching is so constant that the amount of space for the for the fabric to have ripped off was kind of limited. And it means that there's very little edge that doesn't go straight up into a section of top stitching that I can kind of lift up and tuck new fabric under. So the thing I wanted to ask is this. Actually, two things. One, have you ever fixed a quilt like this, an old quilt? Two, because of my adventures with sheets here in the big attic room in the place in Pennsylvania, I had lots of thin, old, soft, white cotton sheeting that I could use. So I pulled off a piece, and at first I tried to, you know, I was thinking, well, maybe I should just cut a piece that's a little bit larger and tuck in the sides and trim it as I go and and that'll be that. And then I thought, or am I supposed to fold over the edges? Should I be trying to get at least a couple of 
layers of white sheet. I'm not going to be able to put any batting in because I, A, don't have any that thin, B, don't have any that's just pure cotton right now, and C, I'm not sure how much of the batting is actually anywhere on this thing to begin with. This might make it look more like a puffball rather than a, a, an invisible mend. And I know it's not going to be invisible, but close, I hope. So I've been trying to figure that out. But the other thing was I did start sewing a piece on to kind of see how it would work out. And I found an embroidery hoop and got out a needle and thread. And what I'm learning is my needles, when it comes to things like quilting, really stink really, really badly. I know I have seen needles that are specified as quilting needles. Does that mean that they are more slippery? Because my needles really stick. They are very sticky. And it was hard to go through, you know, just, it's a, just a couple of layers of cotton. It's not like I'm trying to go through denim or anything. This stuff is lightweight or at least thinned, you know? And wow, am I trying the right thing to fix it this way? Uh, because one of the tears is like a flap, and so I can fold it down, but it, it's not a complete flap. It doesn't close all the way, so I have to put some fabric underneath that one. And a couple others are just holes, and I'm going to have to put fabric in there and and hope for the best. Or should I be using some of that fusion stuff, the stitch witchery stuff, where you cut off a, a length of the tape and put it in between two layers of fabric and then use your iron to fuse it. So that seems to me like sacrilege, <laughs> to be completely honest, on a quilt this old. It's very troublesome, though. I don't know what to do, and I, and I know that my needles are really lousy. So recommendations on needles. If you can put a link in the comment section of the show notes so that I can perhaps buy the needles online rather than having to schlep to Joann's, that would be so awesome. And if you have any websites that you trust that have tutorials on how to go about patching a wonderful, much-loved quilt, that would be marvelous. I'm very hopeful that I will be able to accomplish this because I really want that quilt to be in good shape. I love that quilt. And thank you in advance for your genius. It is so, so marvelous to have you as a resource that I can learn from and share with other people as well. I know that more than a few of you have thanked me or other people, both here and on the Ravelry page, for sharing your genius. Because again, craftlet people, not proud, just better. If you do have quilting information and it would be easier for you to talk rather than email or write a comment, please feel free to call the phone number with this information, area code 206-350-1642. And on the sharing of fantastic information front, I got an email from Jennifer. She wrote in with a book recommendation. I have no affiliation with a book. I have not looked at these except to get the links for you. So at the Craftlet website at 363, episode 363, you will find links to these three books. And I have to tell you, Jennifer has the best Ravelry name ever. It is all one word. You need a sneed. <laughs> You've seen the knitted sneeds online, right? Of the, the woman in the uh, airport, or it looks like an airport, I think, where she is sitting in a full body sneed and typing. This is from the Lorax, from the Dr. Seuss book, The Lorax. Oh my gosh, it's so fabulous. Anyway, Jennifer of the fabulous Ravelry name writes, have you seen these books at all? They're called, uh, they're part of the Small Change series. 
The books are Farthing, Happening, and Half Crown, and they're set in an alternate, recent history where England did not fight Germany in World War II. Each book alternates a first-person viewpoint character with third-person accounts of Carmichael, who is the Scotland Yard detective. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Going back and forth between first-person and third-person? Bleak House, anyone? She goes on to say, I'm in the first third of the last book. I could go on and on and on, but instead I won't. These are books that you just cannot put down and also try to make last because they're just so wonderful. I have no clue whether they've been recorded, and I checked, and they have been. So they are, at least the first book is on Audible as well. I also love books like that, where you want, you know, you want it to last forever, but you just kind of plunge through because it's so much fun to read. She says, I also currently am listening to Gulliver's Travels and waiting for Aaron's next play. I like to have listening and reading going at the same time for different settings. I do, too. I wonder, does everybody do that? All of, I mean, everybody, all of us, people who love books. Do you have a book that you're reading that's for your eyes and then books that you're listening to that are for your ears? Because I'm totally like that. So I wanted to also tell you that when I went to Amazon to look for these books and then put links up on the show notes, I also read the author's biography page. She is an interesting cookie. I'm I'm really, now I'm just intrigued and I want to read everything by her. She has a couple of blogs. In fact, you know what? I'll link to her, I'll link to her author page too so that you can follow her. Her name is Joe, 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 Joe something. Anyway, it's on the show notes. I didn't know I was going to talk about that, so I didn't put a note in my notes. <laughs> on the sad side of things, I am not going to be able to go to Stitches like I had planned. I am very sad. But it's because there was a thing I was doing on Saturday, which is why I couldn't go to Stitches for the whole time. They now want me to come and do the cognitive anchoring talk on Friday afternoon. And there's just no way I can come back at two in the morning and then drive four hours the next morning. So I am so sorry. I was so excited. I hope you can still go and I hope I will get there someday to see you. If you want to see me any sooner, just have me come do cognitive anchoring at one of your local places. So... Subbable USB bracelets. Okay. I actually had to sit down with an audio engineer to go over how to remaster some of my older files. As I've mentioned before, technology has improved considerably and a lot of stuff has changed, including I have gotten better equipment. And that means both hardware and software. And so when I went back into Wuthering Heights to listen, I found that there were some very specific kinds of problems that I now know how to A, diagnose, and B, fix. And so I've been going back in and remastering all of the Wuthering Heights files. Sadly, four of the original pieces of audio had been corrupted. So I went back to the audio engineer, and the short version is... I had to learn how to clean up an old mp3 file. And it's taken nearly three weeks, but it means that the Wuthering Heights audiobook is almost ready to get loaded onto USB bracelets. So those of you who have ordered Wuthering Heights, that's what's taking so long. You will be so much happier when you get it. Trust me. If you purchased Wuthering Heights from the Craftlet shop that you can get to from the show notes at craftlet.com or go to crafting-a-life.com slash shop, 
If you purchased Wuthering Heights there over the last few years, please let me know and I will send you new audio files. I'm working on more of the got book pieces of art. If there is a particular piece of art that you love and would like to see corrupted by having a craftlet iPhone app (laughs) and earbuds inserted into it, I would be more than happy to do that for you. Just let me know. Oh, which reminds me, art, the Night Watch. I don't know if you saw this. It was one of those flash mob things where... I don't know if you're familiar with the painting Night Watch. It's at the Rijksmuseum in Holland. (laughs) And a flash mob at a mall in, I don't know, Amsterdam? I think it's in Amsterdam. Anyway, they enter the mall sliding down ropes in period costumes. It's a Rembrandt painting. They come in from all over. They act out some kind of crazy scene, and they all wind up in the middle of the mall in the poses of the painting The Night Watch, and it's advertising the new and improved, renovated Rijksmuseum. I'm, oh, I'm just so excited. It's so marvelous. So many of these flash mobs, there's just such joy, and they always seem to be, the the ones that I'm certainly drawn to are the ones where the people who are watching are so taken aback at first, and then just so overwhelmed that someone would take the time to do this. And it's one of those extraordinary moments of this will never happen again. We will never be here again. This will, this will never, nobody else on the planet is ever going to see this thing happening at this moment. And I know that every day is like that. You know, there's only one of today ever. And there are things like the birth of a child. Wow. You are never going to relive this moment. And I guess maybe one of the things about those wonderful, joyful flash mobs that makes it feel so well, it feels so good to watch, is that it's communal. You know, the same way that with Craftlet, we're all in our separate places, but we're all listening to the same book. We're all enjoying the same text. And so when we do get together online or in person and have an opportunity to talk, there's that common sharing thing that happens. I guess that's what I'm attracted to. I don't know. But it's, oh, it's so wonderful to watch. So I have linked to the YouTube video version of that for you because it is just so darn fun. Which reminded me, I wanted to mention big hello and shout out to Cheeky Redhead. Cheeky Redhead and I have been corresponding for years and she has listened to the podcast forever. And I'd forgotten that she lives in Pennsylvania. And so a couple weeks ago, we went and had tea with another friend of hers who was marvelous and her amazingly, gorgeously beautiful, what, 18-month-old daughter. It was so much fun. And again, it's one of those things like sitting down and having tea together. It felt like... I've known her forever. And of course, there's the the now mythic and legendary craftlet zeitgeist, which has once again happened. We are being stalked by the Big Bang Theory. I just want to put that out there. Way back when we did Flatland, they did Flatland jokes on the Big Bang Theory. And now, now that we're doing Sherlock Holmes, what did they have a joke of last week? Sherlock Holmes. So I don't know which producer or writer over on the Big Bang Theory is a Craftlet listener, but I'm coming for you, man. <laughs> no. <laughs> I just I just want to know why. We are part of the collective unconscious. Sure, I get it. But this is a little ridiculous. Ooh, and so Sherlock Holmes is the new book. Actually, it's The Study in Scarlet is the new book on the premium membership 
audio feed, which you can access either through the app and sign up that way by tapping on one of the little lock icons, or you can sign up for a download-only membership, which gives you access to a downloading page where you can download the episodes as MP3 files and listen to them on whatever device you have. So Sherlock Holmes is that book, and we're about to start, let's see, this week will be the third installment out of, I think there's going to be 10. And then you guys need to know what your new book is here on Craftlet. We're going to finish North and South uh, the first or second week in October. I guess it's the second week in October. And then I will take uh, three, three or four weeks off in order to prepare for the next book, which will be, drumroll, Herland by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. I had planned on reading Herland for you. And as I started reading it over again, I thought, you know, the narrator and all of the voices, they're all guys. And while I am not so old-fashioned that I think that men must read men's parts, I know that when it's in your head, it helps, I think, to have the proper voice doing the thing. And so I was thinking about it, and then I went, oh, dad. I'm very excited about that. I think you'll enjoy, I mean, I enjoyed listening to him read to me when I was growing up. He read uh, the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin and a bunch of Mark Twain to me. And so I, I know that he has the, the ability to do this kind of humor. And yes, I said humor. We've been on some serious books for quite a while now. It was time to inject some levity into the mix. And while Herland has an important and in some ways sobering end, there's a lot of humor while you're going there. And some of it is because it's of a time and the men who are the main characters are not particularly self-reflective people. And some of it is that it was written by a woman at a time when men maybe didn't know that they could be like this. And so there's, there's a lot of kind of exposing that side of things. Not like the modern paradigm where since you can't make fun of anybody else, the only people you can make fun of are white men. And so all fathers on television have become idiots. It's not, it's not that kind of thing. But it is definitely of a time, and it is fun. So now you know. So that'll be starting beginning of November, somewhere around there. And I hope you'll tune in for that. I'm very excited. Good to have a little humor before the holidays. All right, then, North and South. North and South today, we're doing chapters 45 and 46. And 45 is not even two full pages long. It's very, very short. But interesting because these two chapters, 45 and 46, did not ever appear in household words. And I think you can tell, actually, I really do. I know that she had wanted to put these in, at least to a certain extent. I don't know it was a fully formed idea or just a, oh, I'd like to do that. But you'll see how... These chapters are definitely part of a different world from our our Manchester Milton world. And Mr. Bell is here, so humor. (laughs) There's actually some really marvelously snarky humor in, in this one, and sometimes even not so subtle snarky humor, which I found kind of surprising. But it also made me go and start looking up a couple of things because of some footnotes that are in the text that I am using for when I'm looking at text to identify spellings of things and stuff like that. The little epigrams at the beginning of the chapters, the one for chapter 45, not such a big deal. 
you're going to hear it and go, okay, fine. And chapter 45, not such a big deal in general. It's moving the plot along kind of chapter. It's a, oh, we have to get there from here, so I need to include these three little half pages. Done. That said, it starts with a beautiful piece of prose. A heartbreaking, in some ways, piece of prose. I went back and I listened to this section, just chapter 45, which, you'll, you know, it's probably three minutes long, five minutes long. I listened to it over and over again because something must have changed for Gaskell while she was writing this. And she, I mean, she didn't die particularly old. She died at 55. And I mean, dropped. She was having tea with her daughters and just gasped and dropped. And I certainly am aware that as I approach the half-century turning point in life, I am finding myself more and more often, it's not melancholy or despair or anything like that, but you do tend to start to look at things, I think, and say, wow, um, I am never going to speak Italian. (laughs) <laughs> or, or you know, something like that. That It's one of those things that when you're young, you go, ooh, I can do this and I can do that, and all things are open to me. And, you know, doors close as you get older, which isn't to say that if I devoted my time for the next five years to learning Italian, I couldn't. It's just that I know that I'm not going to because I have other things that I'm devoting my time to. And that's that's a little a little sad, And that's kind of the tone of the beginning of chapter 45. So it's worth the good paying attention to the very, very beginning. Then the next thing that kind of rung bells for me and that I went and researched was the epigram at the start of 46. There was something about the lines and then a footnote saying that this particular poem, which is by Johann Ludwig Uhland, who's originally wrote in German, the English title for the poem is Crossing the Stream. And evidently she used these lines at the beginning of her novel, Mary Barton. Mary Barton was her first novel. And she turned to writing as a way to get over the stillborn birth of her first child. She kind of did with writing what others have done with knitting. And uh, her husband recognized that this was really helpful. She had another stillborn child, and then she had a baby who died in infancy, her, her little boy. And uh, I think it was after that that her husband said, uh, here is more paper. Why don't you write more, like maybe a book? And that was Mary Barton. So Gaskell came to writing late, although she clearly had a knack for it, and I think her letters that have been collected are all pretty marvelous. But But she had had her share of sadness in her life. And I think you can sense some of that in these chapters. Some of it is that moving on thing that, you know, you can, you can never return to your childhood home, not because it isn't there, but because you aren't a child anymore. And the house now looks small and the backyard is not boundless and it's not as beautiful as you might remember. It's that your your perspective is not the perspective that it had been. But Gaskell, Gaskell, Gaskell's, Gaskell's got some interesting perspective here. So 
that, I just wanted to bring that to your attention. And if I can find a link to the German and to the English, I will put those in the show notes as well so that you can read the complete Euland text if you're interested. Now, before we get too much further and before I forget, we got a comment on the show notes that I wanted to read to you and a voicemail that I wanted to play for you, both about North and South. So first, the email. This comes to us from Lisa, and she wrote in, she says, I'm, I'm writing in to talk a bit about Mrs. Thornton. Mrs. Thornton is jealous of Margaret, and that is why she behaves that way towards her. Mrs. Thornton has said before that she was once in a riot, and she went to the roof to throw down the stones, and she would have done it too if she hadn't fainted, blaming that one on the heat. The only time that we've seen Margaret faint was when the policeman came to her house and that was after he left. Mrs. Thornton talks a good game, but now she's met her match in the younger, stronger Margaret and is threatened. While Mrs. Thornton was in the room caring for Fanny, something she could have left to many servants to do, Margaret was actually out there, shielding John from the angry mob. That must have stuck in Mrs. Thornton's craw, and so when she had the opportunity to put Margaret in her place based on half-information, she wasted no time. Mrs. Thornton is strong, yes. She keeps things together, but it seems that it was John who went about setting things right with the debtors, and it was his work that was responsible for a great deal of his success. Mrs. Thornton sees Margaret doing things she's only said she herself could do. She sees her as someone John could really rely on and be distracted with and replace her in his life as numero uno. That is why she's so happy to reproach her when the opportunity arose, and she is so pleased to hear that Margaret is leaving Milton. It's like the cliché mother-in-law who puts herself up as a better cook or housekeeper than her new daughter-in-law. It is interesting that she would accommodate Fanny in her silliness and understand that it is her character, but so far has refused to give Margaret an inch. It all boils down to simple jealousy. What do you think? I think Lisa might be on to something there. Those are all good points. And it would make an awful lot of sense. And she has talked about when John was going to go propose how Margaret would replace her in his affections. And she was concerned about that and sad. So yeah, I was glad that uh, that Lisa put that up on the show notes. And we have a voicemail from Gabby about Mrs. Gaskell and the Irish. Hi, Heather. This is Gabrielle. Gabby on Ravelry. Gabby H on Twitter. I keep meaning to send in an email and I've given up. I was responding to the discussion about whether or not North and South is critical of the Irish and whether her writing is revealing her own disdain for the Irish. It's been interesting to listen to people's comments and hear what you've had to say. I have to say that I read it differently. I read it in more commentary about Margaret and the general societal influences. But I think, you know, rereading some of those passages is helpful, regardless of which way you interpret it. But I definitely looked at the discussion about Mrs. Boucher and the description of her really is more critical of the circumstances for all of them rather than discussing her in particular. It doesn't seem to work for me to think that Gaskell is critical of all of these elements, religion and the machinists and the rise of the changing classes and is making commentary there, but then this is a personal prejudice. I'm not really able to hold both of those in my head at the same time, and I, I really do look at this as her making more of a comment through Margaret and through the narrator. So that's it. I love it when you guys do that. 
it's so cool to have the phone number now because it's a discussion. Oh, it's so nice. So a different perspective on the Irish problem <laughs> as opposed to the woman problem, <laughs> which, is, which is what we'll hear more about in Herland. So book chapter things to watch out for. You may be familiar with the Henry Wadsworth Longfellow poem Evangeline or Evangeline. You're going to hear a reference to that, but you're going to hear it coupled with a German piece, The German Idols of Hermann and Dorothea, which was a poem by Goethe. And you will also hear a throwaway line where she is quoting a Tennyson poem. She says, each of which made her cry upon, quote, the days that are no more, unquote. And those are the final words of each stanza in Tennyson's poem, Tears, Idle Tears. And that was included in his book, uh, The Princess, in 1847. And for all you Americans, or and, and perhaps non-Victorian people anywhere, <laughs> if you aren't familiar with Victorian children's literature, you may not have heard of a book called The Parent's Assistant, by Maria Edgeworth. This was a book that contained multiple stories that were used with uh, children to teach both a moral lesson and also help them learn to read. And one of those stories is the story called Simple Susan. You will hear Mr. Bell make a joke, including that phrase. And it will sound like it's a thing. It's a thing that you should know. And if you didn't know about this book, you wouldn't have known about that character or that story. You'll hear an odd reference to Hamlet. It surprised me. And I went and found that section, and I've linked to it from the show notes so that you can see which part it is referring to. It's Act 5, Scene 2, just to put it into context. And Mr. Bell mentions left-hand marriages. Now, this living in a country, growing up in a country that does not contain royalty or nobility, which we prove all the time, uh, we don't have this phrase as part of our world. What it's talking about is a marriage where uh, usually the man, not always, but usually the man is marrying someone who's beneath his station. So this would be royalty or nobility marrying a commoner. Now There are all sorts of laws and rules and restrictions about who can inherit what in a situation like this. You may recall Downton Abbey. But unlike Downton Abbey, this was when the woman did not come to the marriage with any stuff of her own, any money of her own, at least not to speak of. And it is, in fact, a different level of marriage, even, because instead of the groom holding the bride's right hand with his right hand, he's holding her hand with his left hand. It is indicative of the fact that this is not a marriage of equals. And I find that rather appalling. But it turns out that it is a thing that goes way back. And in fact, even has a special name. It is a morganatic marriage. This goes back etymologically, perhaps to Latin, but it also, some people think it goes back to an ancient Gothic word, morgian, M-O-R-G-I-A-N, which means to limit or restrict, which would be the restriction on the passing on the property or the, the money. There seems to be some kind of confusion as to where the actual word comes from, but that's certainly how it is used, a morganatic marriage or a left-handed marriage. So that's what that's about. And it would be something that if someone in your family perpetrated a morganatic marriage, it would not necessarily be something you would talk about in polite company because how embarrassing. 
You will hear a reference to the French motto of the Order of the Garter, which uh, I'm not going to butcher the French for you, but I will tell you that it is evil be to him who evil thinks, which I think is the same phrase that I, I pulled up a couple years ago that my high school AP teacher used to pull out <laughs> when he wanted to indicate that we had dirty minds because we saw questionable jokes where there couldn't possibly have been a questionable joke made. It's Shakespeare. It's, you know, pure and doesn't have any off-color jokes in it. Not in any of the plays, certainly not in the comedies. Golly, Moses. Uh, you will also hear an Irish poet's poem referenced to turn and look back when thou hearst the sound of my name. That comes from a poem called A Place in Thy Memory, Dearest. It's by Gerald Griffin. And for those of you who are very good with your Bible, you will recognize that Margaret conflates two books of the Bible. She has a passage from Hebrews, and she has a passage from Psalms. The Hebrews is chapter 13, verse 8, and the Psalms is chapter 90, verse 2. She says, The same yesterday, today, and forever, everlasting, from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. So that's what that is. And that is all we have to go over before I play you the chapters. There is much to talk about on the flip side. So here we go with chapters 45 and 46. Chapter 45 Not All a Dream Where are the sounds that swam along the buoyant air when I was young? The last vibration now is over, and they who listened are no more. Ah, let me close my eyes and dream. W.S. Landor the idea of Helston had been suggested to Mr. Bell's waking mind by his conversation with Mr. Lennox, and all night long it ran riot through his dreams. He was again the tutor in the college where he now held the rank of fellow. It was again a long vacation, and he was staying with his newly married friend, the proud husband and happy vicar of Helston. Over babbling brooks they took impossible leaps, which seemed to keep them whole days suspended in the air. Time and space were not, though all other things seemed real. Every event was measured by the emotions of the mind, not by its actual existence, for existence it had none. But the trees were gorgeous in their autumnal leafiness. The warm odors of flower and herb came sweet upon the scents. The young wife moved about her house with just that mixture of annoyance at her position as regarded wealth, with pride in her handsome and devoted husband, which Mr. Bell had noticed in real life a quarter of a century ago. The dream was so lifelike that, when he awoke, his present life seemed like a dream. Where was he? in the close, handsomely furnished room of a London hotel. Where were those who spoke to him, moved around him, touched him not an instant ago? Dead, buried, lost forevermore, as far as earth's forevermore would extend. He was an old man, so lately exultant in the full strength of manhood. The utter loneliness of his life was insupportable to think about. 
He got up hastily and tried to forget what nevermore might be in a hurried dressing for the breakfast in Harley Street. He could not attend to all the lawyer's details, which, as he saw, made Margaret's eyes dilate and her lips grow pale, as one by one fate decreed, or so it seemed, every morsel of evidence which would exonerate Frederick should fall from beneath her feet and disappear. Even Mr. Lennox's well-regulated professional voice took a softer, tenderer tone as he drew near to the extinction of the last hope. It was not that Margaret had not been perfectly aware of the result before. It was only that the details of each successive disappointment came with such relentless minuteness to quench all hope that she at last fairly gave way to tears. Mr. Lennox stopped reading. "'I had better not go on,' said he in a concerned voice. "'It was a foolish proposal of mine. "'Lieutenant Tell,' and even this giving him the title of the service "'from which he had so harshly been expelled, was soothing to Margaret. "'Lieutenant Hale is happy now, "'more secure in fortune and future prospects "'than he could ever have been in the Navy, "'and has doubtless adopted his wife's country as his own.' "'That is it,' said Margaret. "'It seems so selfish in me to regret it,' "'trying to smile. "'And yet he is lost to me, and I am so lonely.' Mr. Lennox turned over his papers and wished that he were as rich and prosperous as he believed he should be some day. Mr. Bell blew his nose, but otherwise he also kept silence, and Margaret, in a minute or two, had apparently recovered her usual composure. She thanked Mr. Lennox very courteously for his trouble, all the more courteously and graciously, because she was conscious that, by her behavior, he might have probably been led to imagine that he had given her needless pain. Yet it was pain she would not have been without. Mr. Bell came up to wish her goodbye. Margaret, said he as he fumbled with his gloves, I am going down to Helston tomorrow to look at the old place. Would you like to come with me, or would it give you too much pain? Speak out, don't be afraid. Oh, Mr. Bell, said she, and could say no more, but she took his old gouty hand and kissed it. Come, come, that's enough, said he, reddening with awkwardness. I suppose your Aunt Shaw will trust you with me. We'll go tomorrow morning, and we shall get there about two o'clock, I fancy. We'll take a snack and order dinner at the little inn, the Leonard Arms it used to be, and go and get an appetite in the forest. Can you stand it, Margaret? It will be a trial, I know, to both of us, but it will be a pleasure to me, at least, and there we'll dine. It will be but dough venison if we can get it at all, and then I'll take my nap while you go out and see old friends. I'll give you back safe and sound, barring railway accidents, and I'll insure your life for a thousand pounds before starting, which may be some comfort to your relations. But otherwise... I'll bring you back to Mrs. Shaw by lunchtime on Friday. So, if you say yes, I'll just go upstairs and propose it. It's no use my trying to say how much I shall like it, said Margaret through her tears. Well then, prove your gratitude by keeping those fountains of yours dry for the next two days. 
If you don't, I shall feel queer myself about the lacrimal ducts, and I don't like that. I won't cry a drop, said Margaret, winking her eyes to shake the tears off her eyelashes and forcing a smile. There's my good girl. Then we'll go upstairs and settle it all. Margaret was in a state of almost trembling eagerness while Mr. Bell discussed the plan with her Aunt Shaw, who was first startled, then doubtful and perplexed, and in the end, yielding rather to the rough force of Mr. Bell's words than to her own conviction. For to the last, whether it was right or wrong, proper or improper, she could not settle to her own satisfaction till Margaret's safe return. The happy fulfillment of the project gave her decision enough to say she was sure it had been a very kind thought of Mr. Bell's and just what she herself had been wishing for Margaret as giving her the very change which she required after all the anxious time she had had. Chapter 46 Once and Now So... On those happy days of yore, oft as I dare to dwell once more, still must I miss the friend so tried, whom death has severed from my side. But ever when true friendship binds, spirit it is that spirit finds. In spirit, then, our bliss we found. In spirit yet to them I'm bound. Euland Margaret was ready long before the appointed time, and had leisure enough to cry a little quietly when unobserved, and to smile brightly when anyone looked at her. Her last alarm was lest they should be too late and miss the train, but no, they were all in time, and she breathed freely and happily at length, seated in the carriage opposite to Mr. Bell, and whirling away past the well-known stations seeing the old south country towns and hamlets sleeping in the warm light of the pure sun, which gave a yet ruddier color to their tiled roofs, so different to the cold slates of the north. Broods of pigeons hovered around those peaked quaint gables, slowly settling here and there, and ruffling their soft, shiny feathers, as if exposing every fiber to the delicious warmth. There were few people about at the stations. It almost seemed as if they were too lazily content to wish to travel. None of the bustle and stir that Margaret had noticed in her two journeys on the London and Northwestern line. Later on in the year, this line of railway should be stirring and alive with rich pleasure-seekers. But as to the constant going to and fro of busy tradespeople, it would always be widely different from the northern lines. Here, a spectator or two stood lounging at nearly every station, with his hands in his pockets, so absorbed in the simple act of watching that it made the travellers wonder what he could find to do when the train whirled away, and only the blank of a railway, some sheds, and a distant field or two were left for him to gaze upon. The hot air danced over the golden stillness of the land. Farm after farm was left behind each reminding Margaret of German idols, of Hermann and Dorothea, of Evangeline. From this waking dream she was roused. It was the place to leave the train and take the fly to Hilston. And now sharper feelings came shooting through her heart, 
whether pain or pleasure she could hardly tell. Every mile was redolent of associations which she would not have missed for the world, but each of which made her cry upon the days that are no more with ineffable longing. The last time she had passed along this road was when she had left it with her father and mother. The day, the season, had been gloomy, and she herself hopeless. But they were there with her. Now she was alone, an orphan, and they, strangely, had gone away from her and vanished from the face of the earth. It hurt her to see the Helston Road so flooded in the sunlight, and every turn and every familiar tree so precisely the same in its summer glory as it had been in former years. Nature felt no change and was ever young. Mr. Bell knew something of what would be passing through her mind, and wisely and kindly held his tongue. They drove up to the Leonard Arms, half farmhouse, half inn, standing a little apart from the road, as much to say that the host did not so depend on the custom of travellers as to have to court it by any obtrusiveness. They, rather, must seek him out. The house fronted the village green, and right before it stood an immemorial lime tree benched all round, in some hidden recesses of whose leafy wealth hung the grim escutcheon of the Leonards. The door of the inn stood wide open, but there was no hospitable hurry to receive the travellers. When the landlady did appear, and they might have abstracted many an article first, she gave them a kind welcome, almost as if they had been invited guests, and apologized for her coming having been so delayed by saying that it was hay-time, and the provisions for the men had to be sent to field, and she had been too busy packing up the baskets to hear the noise of wheels over the road which, since they had left the highway, ran over soft, short turf. "'Why, bless me!' exclaimed she at the end of her apology. A glint of sunlight showed her Margaret's face, hitherto unobserved in that shady parlour. "'It's Miss Ale, Jenny,' said she, running to the door and calling to her daughter. "'Come here, come directly. It's Miss Ale.' And then she went up to Margaret and shook her hands with motherly fondness. "'And how are you all? How's the vicar and Miss Dixon? The vicar above all.' God bless him. We've never ceased to be sorry that he left. Margaret tried to speak and tell her of her father's death. Of her mother's, it was evident that Mrs. Perkis was aware from her omission of her name. But she choked in the effort and could only touch her deep mourning and say the one word. Papa? Surely, sir, it's never so said Mrs. Perkis, turning to Mr. Bell for confirmation of the sad suspicion that now entered her mind. There was a gentleman here in the spring, it might have been as long ago as last winter, who told us a deal of Mr. Hale and Miss Margaret, and he said Mrs. Hale was gone, poor lady, but never a word of the vicar's being ailing. It is so, however, said Mr. Bell. He died quite suddenly, when on a visit to me at Oxford. He was a good man, Mrs. Perkis, and there's many of us that might be thankful to have as calm an end as his. Come, Margaret, my dear. Her father was my oldest friend, and she's my goddaughter, so I thought we would just come down together and see the old place, 
and I know of old you can give us comfortable rooms and a capital dinner. You don't remember me, I see, but my name is Bell, and once or twice when the parsonage has been full, I've slept here and tasted your good ale. To be sure I ask your pardon, but you see, I was taken up with Miss Ale. Let me show you to a room, Miss Margaret, where you can take off your bonnet and wash your face. It's only this very morning I plunged some fresh gathered roses head downward in the water jug for, thought I, perhaps someone will be coming, and there's nothing so sweet as spring water scented by a musk rose or two. To think of the vicar being dead. Well, to be sure we must all die, only that gentleman said... He was quite picking up after his trouble about Mrs. Hale's death. Come down to me, Mrs. Perkis, after you have attended to Miss Hale. I want to have a consultation with you about dinner. The little casement window in Margaret's bedchamber was almost filled up with rose and vine branches, but pushing them aside and stretching a little out, she could see the tops of the parsonage chimneys above the trees and distinguish many a well-known line through the leaves. "'Aye,' said Mrs. Perkis, smoothing down the bed and dispatching Jenny for an armful of lavender-scented towels. "'Times is changed, miss.' Our new vicar has seven children and is building a nursery ready for more, just out where the arbor and the tool house used to be in old times. And he has had new grates put in and a plate glass window in the drawing room. He and his wife are stirring people and have done a deal of good. At least they say it's doing good. If it were not, I should call it turning things upside down for very little purpose. The new vicar is a teetotaler, miss, and a magistrate, and his wife has a dealer receipts for economical cooking, and is for making bread without yeast. And they both talk so much, and both at a time, that they knock one down, as it were. And it is not till they're gone and one's a little at peace that one can think that there were things one might have said on one's own side of the question. He'll be after the men's cans in the hayfield and peeping in, and then there'll be an ado, because it's not ginger beer. But I can't help it. My mother and my grandmother before me sent good malt liquor to haymakers and took salts and senna when anything ailed them, and I must even go on in their ways. Though Mrs. Epworth does want to give me comfits instead of medicine, which, as she says, is a deal pleasanter, only I've no faith in it. But I must go, miss, though I'm wanting to hear many a thing. I'll come back to you before long. Mr. Bell had strawberries and cream, a loaf of brown bread, and a jug of milk, together with a Stilton cheese and a bottle of port for his own private refreshment ready for Margaret on her coming downstairs, and after this rustic luncheon they set out to walk, hardly knowing in what direction to turn, so many old familiar inducements were there in each. "'Shall we go past the vicarage?' asked Mr. Bell. "'No, not yet. We will go this way and make a round so as to come back by it,' replied Margaret." Here and there, old trees had been felled the autumn before, or a squatter's roughly built and decaying cottage had disappeared. Margaret missed them each and all, and grieved over them like old friends. 
They came past the spot where she and Mr. Lennox had sketched. The white, lightning-scarred trunk of the venerable beech, among whose roots they had sat down, was there no more. The old man, the inhabitant of the ruinous cottage, was dead. The cottage had been pulled down, and a new one, tidy and respectable, had been built in its stead. There was a small garden on the place where the beech tree had been. "'I did not think I had been so old,' said Margaret after a pause of silence, and she turned away, sighing. "'Yes,' said Mr. Bell. "'It is the first changes among familiar things that make such a mystery of time to the young. Afterwards, we lose the sense of the mysterious.' I take changes in all I see as a matter of course. The instability of all human things is familiar to me. To you it is new and oppressive. Let us go on to see little Susan, said Margaret, drawing her companion up a grassy roadway leading under the shadow of a forest glade. With all my heart, though I have not an idea who little Susan may be. "'But I have a kindness for all Susans, for simple Susan's sake.' "'My little Susan was disappointed when I left without wishing her goodbye, "'and it has been on my conscience ever since that I gave her pain "'which a little more exertion on my part might have prevented. "'But it is a long way. Are you sure you will not be tired?' "'Quite sure. That is, if you don't walk so fast.' You see, here there are no views that can give one an excuse for stopping to take breath. You would think it romantic to be walking with a person fat and scant of breath if I were Hamlet, Prince of Denmark. Have compassion on my infirmities for his sake. I will walk slower for your own sake. I like you twenty times better than Hamlet. On the principle that a living ass is better than a dead lion? Perhaps so. I don't analyze my feelings. I am content to take your liking me without examining too curiously into the materials it is made of. Only we need not walk at a snail's pace. Very well. Walk at your own pace and I will follow. Or stop still and meditate like the hamlet you compare yourself to if I go too fast. Thank you, but as my mother has not murdered my father and afterwards married my uncle, I shouldn't know what to think about unless it were balancing the chances of our having a well-cooked dinner or not. What do you think? I am in good hopes. She used to be considered a famous cook as far as Helston opinion went. But have you considered the distraction of mind produced by all this hay-making? Margaret felt all Mr. Bell's kindness in trying to make cheerful talk about nothing, to endeavor to prevent her from thinking too curiously about the past. But she would rather have gone over these dear loved walks in silence, if indeed she were not ungrateful enough to wish that she might have been alone. They reached the cottage where Susan's widowed mother lived. Susan was not there. She was gone to the parochial school. Margaret was disappointed, and the poor woman saw it and began to make a kind of apology. Oh, it is quite right, said Margaret. I'm very glad to hear it. I'm, I might have thought of it, only she used to stop at home with you. Yes, she did, and I miss her sadly. I used to teach her what little I knew at nights, 
It were not much to be sure, but she were getting such a andy girl that I miss her sore. But she's a deal above me in learning now. And the mother sighed. I'm all wrong, growled Mr. Bell. Don't mind what I say. I'm a hundred years behind the world, but I should say that the child was getting a better and simpler and more natural education stopping at home and helping her mother and learning to read a chapter in the New Testament every night by her side than from all the schooling under the sun. Margaret did not want to encourage him to go on by replying to him and so prolonging the discussion before the mother. So she turned to her and asked, How is old Betty Barnes? I don't know, said the woman rather shortly. We's not friends. Why not? asked Margaret, who had formerly been the peacemaker of the village. She stole my cat. Did she know it was yours? I don't know, I reckon not. Well, could you not get it back again when you told her it was yours? No, for she'd burnt it. Burnt it? exclaimed both Margaret and Mr. Bell. Roasted it, explained the woman. It was no explanation. By dint of questioning, Margaret extracted from her the horrible fact that Betty Barnes, having been induced by a gypsy fortune-teller to lend the latter her husband's Sunday clothes on promise of having them faithfully returned on the Saturday night before Goodman Barnes should have missed them, became alarmed by their non-appearance and her consequent dread of her husband's anger, and, as according to one of the savage country superstitions, the cries of a cat in the agonies of being boiled or roasted alive compelled, as it were, the powers of darkness to fulfill the wishes of the executioner. Resort had been had to the charm. The poor woman evidently believed in its efficacy, her only feeling was indignation that her cat had been chosen out from all others for a sacrifice. Margaret listened in horror and endeavored in vain to enlighten the woman's mind, but she was obliged to give it up in despair. Step by step, she got the woman to admit certain facts of which the logical connection and sequence was perfectly clear to Margaret. But at the end, the bewildered woman simply repeated her first assertion, namely that it were very cruel for sure, and she should not like to do it, but that there were nothing like it for giving a person what they wished for. She had heard it all her life. But it were very cruel for all that. Margaret gave it up in despair and walked away sick at heart. You are a good girl not to triumph over me, said Mr. Bell. How? What do you mean? I own I am wrong about schooling. Anything rather than have that child brought up in such practical paganism. Oh, I remember. Poor little Susan. I must go and see her. Would you mind calling at the school? Not a bit. I am curious to see something of the teaching she is to receive. They did not speak much more, but threaded their way through many a bosky dell whose soft green influence could not charm away the shock and pain in Margaret's heart caused by the recital of such cruelty. A recital, too, the manner of which betrayed such utter want of imagination and therefore of any sympathy with the suffering animal. 
The buzz of voices like the murmur of a hive of busy human bees made itself heard as soon as they emerged from the forest on the more open village green on which the school was situated. The door was wide open, and they entered. A brisk lady in black, here, there, and everywhere, perceived them and bade them welcome with somewhat of the hostess air which, Margaret remembered, her mother was wont to assume, only in a more soft and languid manner when any rare visitor strayed in to inspect the school. She knew at once it was the present vicar's wife, her mother's successor, and she would have drawn back from the interview had it been possible. But in an instant she had conquered this feeling and modestly advanced, meeting many a bright glance of recognition and hearing many a half-suppressed murmur of, "'It's Miss Hale!' The vicar's lady heard the name, and her manner at once became more kindly. Margaret wished she could have helped, feeling that it also became more patronizing. The lady held out a hand to Mr. Bell with, "'Your father, I presume, Miss Hale. I see it by the likeness. I am sure I am very glad to see you, sir, and so will the vicar be.' Margaret explained that it was not her father, and stammered out the fact of his death, wondering all the time how Mr. Hale could have borne coming to revisit Helston if it had been as the vicar's lady supposed. She did not hear what Mrs. Hepworth was saying, and left it to Mr. Bell to reply looking round, meanwhile, for her old acquaintances. "'Ah, I see you would like to take a class, Miss Ale. I know it by myself. First, class, stand up for a passing lesson with Miss Hale.' Poor Margaret, whose visit was sentimental, not in any degree inspective, felt herself taken in. But, as in some way bringing her in contact with little eager faces, once well known— and who had received the solemn rite of baptism from her father. She sat down, half losing herself in tracing out the changing features of the girls, and holding Susan's hand for a minute or two, unobserved by all, while the first class sought for their books, and the vicar's lady went as near as a lady could towards holding Mr. Bell by the button, while she explained the phonetic system to him, and gave him a conversation she had had with the inspector about it. Margaret bent over her book, and seeing nothing but that, hearing the buzz of children's voices, old times rose up and she thought of them, and her eyes filled with tears till, all at once, there was a pause. One of the girls was stumbling over the apparently simple word A, uncertain what to call it. A, an indefinite article, said Margaret mildly. I beg your pardon said the vicar's wife, all eyes and ears. But we are taught by Mr. Milsom to call A an... Who can remember? An adjective absolute, said half a dozen voices at once. And Margaret sat abashed. The children knew more than she did. Mr. Bell turned away and smiled. Margaret spoke no more during the lesson. But after it was over, she went quietly round to one or two old favorites and talked to them a little. They were growing out of children into great girls, passing out of her recollection in their rapid development, as she, by her three years' absence, was vanishing from theirs. Still, she was glad to have seen them all again, though a tinge of sadness mixed itself with her pleasure. 
When school was over for the day, it was yet early in the summer afternoon, and Mrs. Hepworth proposed to Margaret that she and Mr. Bell should accompany her to the parsonage and see the the word improvements had half slipped out of her mouth, but she substituted the more cautious term alterations which the present vicar was making. Margaret did not care a straw about seeing the alterations which jarred upon her fond recollection of what her home had been. But she longed to see the old place once more, even though she shivered away from the pain which she knew she should feel. The parsonage was so altered, both inside and out, that the real pain was less than she had anticipated. It was not like the same place. The garden, the grass plat, formerly so daintily trim that even a stray rose leaf seemed like a fleck on its exquisite arrangement and propriety, was strewed with children's things. A bag of marbles here, a hoop there, a straw hat forced down upon a rose tree as on a peg, to the destruction of a long, beautiful, tender branch laden with flowers which, in former days, would have been trained up tenderly as if beloved. The little square matted hall was equally filled with signs of merry, healthy, rough childhood. Ah, said Mrs. Hepworth, you must excuse this untidiness, Miss Hale. When the nursery is finished, I shall insist upon a little order. We are building a nursery out of your room, I believe. How did you manage, Miss Hale, without a nursery? We were but two, said Margaret. You have many children, I presume. Seven. Look here. We are throwing out a window to the road on this side. Mr. Hepworth is spending an immense deal of money on this house, but really it was scarcely habitable when we came, for so large a family as ours, I mean, of course. Every room in the house was changed, besides the one of which Mrs. Hepworth spoke, which had been Mr. Hale's study formerly, and where the green gloom and delicious quiet of the place had conduced, as he had said, to a habit of meditation. But, perhaps, in some degree, to the formation of a character more fitted for thought than action. The new window gave a view of the road and had many advantages, as Mrs. Hepworth pointed out. From it the wandering sheep of her husband's flock might be seen. Who struggled to the tempting beer-house, unobserved as they might hope, but not unobserved in reality, for the active vicar kept his eye on the road even during the composition of his most orthodox sermons and had a hat and stick hanging ready at hand to seize before sallying out after his parishioners who had need of quick legs if they could take refuge in the jolly forester before the teetotal vicar had arrested them. The whole family were quick, brisk, loud-talking, kind-hearted, and not troubled with much delicacy of perception. Margaret feared that Mrs. Hepworth would find out that Mr. Bell was playing upon her in the admiration he thought fit to express for everything that especially grated on his taste. But no, she took it all literally, and with such good faith that Margaret could not help remonstrating with him as they walked slowly away from the parsonage back to their inn. Don't scold, Margaret. It was all because of you. If she had not shown you every change with such evident exultation in their superior sense, in perceiving what an improvement this and that would be, I could have behaved well. But 
If you must go on preaching, keep it till after dinner, when it will send me to sleep and help my digestion. They were both of them tired, and Margaret herself so much so that she was unwilling to go out as she had proposed to do and have another ramble among the woods and fields so close to the home of her childhood. And somehow this visit to Helston had not been all, had not been exactly what she had expected. There was change everywhere, slight yet pervading all. Households were changed by absence or death or marriage or the natural mutations brought by days and months and years which carry us on imperceptibly from childhood to youth and thence through manhood to age, whence we drop like fruit fully ripe into the quiet mother earth. Places were changed, a tree gone here, a bough there, bringing in a long ray of light where no light was before. A road was trimmed and narrowed, and the green straggling pathway by its side enclosed and cultivated. A great improvement, it was called, but Margaret sighed over the old picturesqueness, the old gloom, and the grassy wayside of former days. She sat by the window on the little settle, sadly gazing out upon the gathering shades of night, which harmonized well with her pensive thought. Mr. Bell slept soundly after his unusual exercise through the day. At last he was roused by the entrance of the tea tray, brought in by a flushed-looking country girl who had evidently been finding some variety from her usual occupation of waiter in assisting this day in the hayfield. Hello? Who's there? Where are we? Who, who's that? Margaret? Oh, now I remember all. I could not imagine what woman was sitting there in such a doleful attitude, with her hands clasped straight out upon her knees and her face looking so steadfastly before her. What were you looking at? asked Mr. Bell, coming to the window and standing behind Margaret. Nothing, said she, rising up quickly and speaking as cheerfully as she could at a moment's notice. Nothing indeed. A bleak background of trees, some white linen hung out on the sweetbriar hedge, and a great waft of damp air. Shut the window and come in and make tea. Margaret was silent for some time. She played with her teaspoon and did not attend particularly to what Mr. Bell said. He contradicted her, and she took the same sort of smiling notice of his opinion as if he had agreed with her. Then she sighed, and, putting down her spoon, she began, apropos of nothing at all, and in the high-pitched voice which usually shows that the speaker has been thinking for some time on the subject that they wish to introduce. Mr. Bell, you remember what we were saying about Frederick last night, don't you? Last night? Where was I? Oh, I remember. Why, it seems a week ago. Yes. To be sure, I recollect we talked about him, poor fellow. Yes, and do you not remember that Mr. Lennox spoke about his having been in England about the time of dear Mamma's death? asked Margaret, her voice now lower than usual. I recollect. I hadn't heard of it before. And I thought, I always thought that Papa had told you about it. No, he never did. But what about it, Margaret? 
I want to tell you of something I did that was very wrong about that time, said Margaret, suddenly looking up at him with her clear, honest eyes. I told a lie, and her face became scarlet. True, that was bad, I own, not but what I have told a pretty round number in my life, not all in downright words, as I suppose you did, but in actions or in some shabby circumlocutory way, leading people either to disbelieve the truth or believe a falsehood. You know who is the father of lies, Margaret. Well, a great number of folk, thinking themselves very good, have odd sorts of connection with lies, left-hand marriages, and second cousins once removed. The tainting blood of falsehood runs through us all. I should have guessed you as far from it as most people. What? Crying, child? Nay, now we'll not talk of it if it ends in this way. I dare say you have been sorry for it and that you won't do it again, and it's long ago now, and, in short, I want you to be very cheerful and not very sad this evening. Margaret wiped her eyes and tried to talk about something else, but suddenly she burst out afresh. Please, Mr. Bell, let me tell you about it. You could perhaps help me a little. No, not help me, but if you knew the truth... Perhaps you could put me to rights. That is not it, after all, said she, in despair at not being able to express herself more exactly as she wished. Mr. Bell's whole manner changed. Tell me about it, child, said he. It's a long story, but when Fred came, Mamma was very ill, and I was undone with anxiety, and, and afraid, too, that I might have drawn him into danger— and we had an alarm just after her death, for Dixon met someone in Milton, a man called Leonard's, who had known Fred, and who seemed to owe him a grudge, or, at any rate, to be tempted by the recollection of the reward offered for his apprehension. And with this new fright, I thought I'd better hurry off Fred to London, where, as you would understand from what we said the other night, he was to go to consult Mr. Lennox as to his chances if he stood the trial. So we... That is, he and I went to the railway station. It was one evening, and it was just getting rather dusk, but still light enough to recognize and be recognized, and we were too early and went out to walk in a field just close by. I was always in a panic about this Leonard's who was, I knew, somewhere in the neighborhood. And then, when we were in the field, the low red sunlight just in my face, Someone came by on horseback in the road just below the field stile by which we stood. I saw him look at me, but I did not know who it was at first. The sun was so in my eyes, but in an instant the dazzle went off, and I saw it was Mr. Thornton, and we bowed. And he saw Frederick, of course, said Mr. Bell, helping her on with her story, as he thought. Yes, and then, at the station, a man came up, tipsy and reeling, and he tried to collar Fred, and overbalanced himself as Fred wrenched himself away, and fell over the edge of the platform. Not far, not deep, not above three feet. But, oh, Mr. Bell, somehow that fall killed him. How awkward. It was this Leonard's, I suppose. 
And how did Fred get off? Oh, he went off immediately after the fall, which we never thought could have done the poor fellow any harm. It seemed so slight an injury. Then he did not die directly? No, not for two or three days. And then, oh, Mr. Bell, now comes the bad part, said she, nervously twining her fingers together. A police inspector came and taxed me with having been the companion of the young man whose push or blow had occasioned Leonard's death. That was a false accusation, you know, but we had not heard that Fred had sailed. He might still be in London and liable to be arrested on this false charge, and his identity with the Lieutenant Hale, accused of causing that mutiny, discovered he might be shot. All this flashed through my mind, and I said it was not me. I was not at the railway station that night. I knew nothing about it. I had no conscience or thought but to save Frederick. I say it was right. I should have done the same. You forgot yourself in thought for another. I hope I should have done the same. No, you would not. It was wrong, disobedient, faithless. At that very time, Fred was safely out of England, and in my blindness I forgot that there was another witness who could testify to my being there. Who? Mr. Thornton. You know he had seen me close to the station. We had bowed to each other. Well, he would know nothing of this riot about the drunken fellow's death. I suppose the inquiry never came to anything. No, the proceedings they had begun to talk about on the inquest were stopped. Mr. Thornton did know all about it. He was a magistrate, and he found out that it was not the fall that had caused the death but not before he knew what I had said. Oh, Mr. Bell! She suddenly covered her face with her hands, as if wishing to hide herself from the presence of the recollection. Did you have any explanation with him? Did you ever tell him the strong, instinctive motive? The instinctive want of faith and clutching at a sin to keep myself from sinking? said she bitterly. No, how could I? He knew nothing of Frederick. To put myself to rights in his good opinion, was I to tell him of the secrets of our family, involving, as they seemed to do, the chances of poor Frederick's entire exculpation? Fred's last words had been to enjoin me to keep his visit a secret from all. You see, Papa never told even you. No, I could bear the shame. I thought I could, at least. I did bear it. Mr. Thornton has never respected me since. He respects you, I'm sure, said Mr. Bell. To be sure, it accounts a little for... But he always speaks of you with regard and esteem, though now I understand certain reservations in his manner. Margaret did not speak did not attend to what Mr. Bell went on to say, lost all sense of it. By and by, she said, Will you tell me what you refer to about reservations in his manner of speaking of me? Oh, simply he has annoyed me by not joining in my praises of you. 
Like an old fool, I thought that everyone would have the same opinions as I had, and he evidently could not agree with me. I was puzzled at the time. But he must be perplexed if the affair has never been in the least explained. There was first your walking out with a young man in the dark. But it was my brother, said Margaret, surprised. True, but how was he to know that? I don't know. I never thought of anything of that kind, said Margaret, reddening and looking hurt and offended. And perhaps he never would but for the lie which, under the circumstances I maintain, was necessary. It was not. I know it now. I bitterly repent it. There was a long pause of silence. Margaret was the first to speak. I... I'm not likely ever to see Mr. Thornton again. And there she stopped. There are many things more unlikely, I should say, replied Mr. Bell. But I believe I never shall. Still, somehow, one does not like to have sunk so low in, in a friend's opinion as I have done in his. Her eyes were full of tears, but her voice was steady, and Mr. Bell was not looking at her. And now that Frederick has given up all hope and almost all wish of ever clearing himself and returning to England, it would be only doing myself justice to have all this explained. If you please, and if you can, if there is a good opportunity, don't force an explanation upon him, pray, but if you can... Will you tell him the whole circumstances and tell him also that I gave you leave to do so? Because I felt that for Papa's sake I should not like to lose his respect, though we may never be likely to meet again. Certainly. I think he ought to know. I do not like you to rest even under the shadow of an impropriety. He would not know what to think of seeing you alone with a young man. As for that said Margaret rather haughtily. I hold it is only soi qui mal y pense. Yet, still I should choose to have it explained, if any natural opportunity for easy explanation occurs. But it is not to clear myself of any suspicion of improper conduct that I wish to have him told. If I thought that he had suspected me, I should not care for his good opinion, no, it is that he may learn how I was tempted and how I fell into the snare. Why I told that falsehood, in short. Which I don't blame you for. It is no partiality of mine, I assure you. What other people may think of the rightness or wrongness is nothing in comparison to my own deep knowledge, my innate conviction that it was wrong. But we will not talk of that any more, if you please. It is done. My sin is sinned. I have now to put it behind me and be truthful forevermore, if I can. Very well. If you like to be uncomfortable and morbid, be so. I always keep my conscience as tight shut up as a jack-in-a-box, for when it jumps into existence it surprises me by its size, so I coax it down again as the fisherman coaxed the genie. Wonderful, say I, to think that you have been concealed so long and in so small a compass that I really did not know of your existence. 
Pray, sir, instead of growing larger and larger every instant and bewildering me with your misty outlines, would you once more compress yourself into your former dimensions? And when I've got him down, don't I clap the seal on the vase and take good care how I open it again, and how I go against Solomon, wisest of men, who can find him there. But it was no smiling matter to Margaret. She hardly attended to what Mr. Bell was saying. Her thoughts ran upon the idea, before entertained, but which now had assumed the strength of a conviction, that Mr. Thornton no longer held his former good opinion of her, that he was disappointed in her. She did not feel as if any explanation could ever reinstate her, not in his love, for that and any return on her part she had resolved never to dwell upon, and she kept rigidly to her resolution. But in the respect and high regard which she had hoped would have made him willing, in the spirit of Gerald Griffin's beautiful lines, to turn and look back when thou hearest the sound of my name. She kept choking and swallowing all the time that she thought about it. She tried to comfort herself with the idea that what he imagined her to be did not alter the fact of what she was, but it was a truism, a phantom, and broke down under the weight of her regret. She had twenty questions on the tip of her tongue to ask Mr. Bell, but not one of them did she utter. Mr. Bell thought that she was tired and sent her early to her room, where she sat long hours by the open window, gazing out on the purple dome above, where the stars arose and twinkled and disappeared behind the great umbrageous trees before she went to bed. All night long, too, there burnt a little light on earth, a candle in her old bedroom, which was the nursery with the present inhabitants of the parsonage until the new one was built. A sense of change, of individual nothingness, of perplexity and disappointment overpowered Margaret. Nothing had been the same, and this slight, all-pervading instability had given her greater pain than if all had been too entirely changed for her to recognize it. I begin to understand now what heaven must be, and, oh, the grandeur and repose of the words, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Everlasting. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. That sky above me looks as though it could not change, and yet it will. I am so tired, so tired of being whirled on through all these phases of my life in which nothing abides by me, no creature, no place. It is like the circle in which the victims of earthly passion eddy continually. I am in the mood in which women of another religion take the veil. I seek heavenly steadfastness and earthly monotony. If I were a Roman Catholic and could deaden my heart, stun it with some great blow, I might become a nun. But I should pine after my kind. No, not my kind, for love for my species could never fill my heart to the utter exclusion of love for individuals. Perhaps it ought to be so. Perhaps not. I cannot decide tonight. 
Wearily she went to bed. Wearily she arose in four or five hours' time. But with the morning came hope and a brighter view of things. After all, it is right, said she, hearing the voices of children at play while she was dressing. If the world stood still, it would retrograde and become corrupt, if that is not Irish. Looking out of myself and my own painful sense of change, the progress all around me is right and necessary. I must not think so much of how circumstances affect me myself, but how they affect others if I wish to have a right judgment or a hopeful, trustful heart. And with a smile ready in her eyes to quiver down to her lips, she went into the parlor and greeted Mr. Bell. Ah, Missy, you were up late last night, so you're late this morning. Now, I've got a little piece of news for you. What do you think of an invitation to dinner? A morning call, literally in the dewy morning. Why, I've had the vicar here already on his way to the school. How much the desire of giving our hostess a teetotal lecture for the benefit of the haymakers had to do with his earliness, I don't know. But here he was when I came down just before nine, and we are asked to dine there today. But Edith expects me back. I cannot go said Margaret, thankful to have so good an excuse. Yes, I know. So I told him. I thought you would not want to go. Still, it is open if you would like it. Oh, no, said Margaret. Let us keep to our plan. Let us start at twelve. It is very good and kind of them, but, indeed, I could not go. Very well. Don't fidget yourself, and I'll arrange it all. Before they left, Margaret stole round to the back of the vicarage garden and gathered a little straggling piece of honeysuckle. She would not take a flower the day before for fear of being observed, and her motives and feelings commented upon. But as she returned across the common, the place was reinvested with the old enchanting atmosphere. The common sounds of life were more musical there than anywhere else in the whole world. The light more golden, the life more tranquil and full of dreamy delight. As Margaret remembered her feelings yesterday, she said to herself, And I too change perpetually, now this, now that, now disappointed and peevish because all is not exactly as I had pictured it, and now suddenly discovering that the reality is far more beautiful than I had imagined it. Oh, Helston. I shall never love any place like you. A few days afterwards she had found her level, and decided that she was very glad to have been there, and that she had seen it again, and that to her it would always be the prettiest spot in the world, but that it was so full of associations with former days, and especially with her father and mother, that if it were all to come over again— she should shrink back from such another visit as that which she had paid with Mr. Bell. So, you see what I mean about chapter 45. 45 just moved us to Helston. And then there's Helston. So first off, Mrs. Perkis <laughs> at the inn in Helston. She cracks me up. And it starts off with her sounding like she likes the new vicar just fine. And then it kind of 
goes downhill from there. He's a teetotaler, which means he doesn't drink. And he goes, she says, poking around in the men's cans in the hayfield. Those are their lunch boxes. He's going and looking in their lunch boxes to see if they have any beer. You can't do that. He would have approved ginger beer, which it isn't beer, alcoholic like like beer beer. But then she says, I can't help it. My mother and my grandmother before me sent good malt liquor to haymakers, which would have provided them with some electrolytes and some salt. And then she says she took salt and senna when anything ailed them. And salts and senna, that would be Epsom salts, which is magnesium, which has a laxative effect on the digestive tract. And senna, the leaves of the senna plant, you could brew into a tea, make a decoction with, and that would do much the same thing. So if the guys aren't feeling regular, you take them some malt liquor and some milk of magnesia, and they're... There it is. Although I, you sure wouldn't want to feed that to them when they're working on the hayfield. I wouldn't have thought. But yeah, so we have now a vicar who is a nosy, busybody teetotaler who's going to watch the guys out his new window to make sure they're not walking to the pub. How much fun to have him be your vicar. Golly, I just couldn't wait. And then there's that whole thing with Susan's mom and the cat. Whoa. I'm willing to put money on the fact that Gaskell heard this and that it was a thing. I don't know. Those of you who live in Yorkshire, have you heard any old wives' tales like this? That roasting a cat would get rid of bad things? Oh my gosh. Horrifying. I loved Belle's reaction. (laughs) Maybe school is good for little Susan. Perhaps that would be better for her. Oh, just that... That freaked me out. And <laughs> the new vicar's wife in the schoolroom. <gasps> Time for a passing lesson. Children, stand. Speak to Miss Hale. Here, Mr. Bell, I'm going to haul you off and tell you all about the phonetic system. And then the girl stumbling over the simple word A. Now, this is the kids would have to stand and recite a sentence and then identify each part of speech for each word in the sentence. <laughs> Something that would be quite difficult for American children in school to do, including me. Not that I'm a child, but I would still have a hard time. So the little girl stumbles on the word A, as in a crazy woman is teaching our class. And Margaret says it's an indefinite article, which I posit any of us would agree with. But no, it is an adjective absolute. Okay, fine. It made me think of New Math. Do you remember the Tom Lehrer song, New Math? I will try and and link to this. Uh, I think there's a version of it on YouTube where it's just audio to listen to. But uh, this is nothing new. The changing of the curriculum, the new research being done, saying that there's a new or better way to do things. Dude, I'm still diagramming sentences. That that worked. (laughs) A visual representation of grammar. I'm good with that. I like that just fine. But this, oh, I just, I, I actually did laugh out loud. I was in the car when I listened to this chapter for the first time and it, it cracked me up because of the improvements to the curriculum and the improvements to the house and poor Margaret, how hard, how hard it would have been to have gone through something like this so soon after her father died. And I particularly loved the fact that Mr. Bell 
was walking around with Mrs. Hepworth, complimenting her on all of the things that he found appalling. Oh, that's marvelous. Oh, you've changed this. Oh, that's wonderful. An adjective absolute. How marvelous. I love that. (laughs) And Margaret thought she was going to figure it out. But no, 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 that would not have been Mrs. Hepworth's way. And then it is interesting, is it not, that this, the end of this chapter, a chapter which did not originally appear in household words, is the point where Margaret says to Mr. Bell the things that she could never say to her father and explains because she knows he knows Mr. Thornton, but he isn't her father. She's able to confess this this horrible lie she told. And Bell is able to give her some perspective, which I thought she'd kind of already gotten, but she seems to be completely shocked that Thornton could possibly have thought that she was doing something nefarious with another young man. Because to her, it was just Frederick. And I thought, too, that his reactions, for someone who's not a father, his reaction was really quite lovely. Everyone tells lies, and you don't have to scratch the surface very far before you hit skeletons in somebody else's closets. But when she really did have a chance to explain the whole thing, he did see how this was complicated and bad. And and not so much that she lied as as that she... He, he understood how her lowering of herself in Mr. Thornton's estimation would be troubling. And I found her commentary at the end to be really interesting, where she said, uh, if I were a different religion, I'd take to the veil. I'd become a nun. Now, I thought that it was curious that she said she'd have to harden her heart to do that, but, but that she, she, was, she was ready to just go to a convent because she really screwed up on this one. Doesn't every high schooler, I mean, not necessarily say, oh, I want to be a nun, but doesn't every high schooler at some point say, oh, I have screwed up so bad, I just need to start over at a different school. I just need to go somewhere where nobody knows me. I need to go someplace where I never have to interact with another human being again. And I get that. I don't know, maybe that was just me. <laughs> but but I, I certainly understand where Margaret is coming from in that section and thought it was interesting that she went to the Roman Catholic thing and wonder if that isn't just that Frederick's on her mind because of the conversation that she's had with Mr. Bell. And then she was able to put Helston to sleep and say, okay, past is past. I'm done. I can move on. And she, she needed that. You can see why Gaskell had wanted to add this chapter in. She needed to give Margaret an opportunity to put things to rest. And she needed an opportunity to let the innkeeper drop that a gentleman had been there in the spring who told her about Mrs. Hale's death. Because we also heard from Mr. Thornton when he was talking to Belle that he had seen Helston. So now we have that dropped from two different locations, two different people. So if we didn't catch it the first time, We might have picked up on it this time because Mrs. Perkis is not so subtle with that. So, uh, next week, 47, 48, 49. And then the week after, 50, 51, 52. End of book. Two more episodes and we're done and we get to see what happens at the end. All right, have a great week. I will talk to you soon. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, like us on Facebook, or leave a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Craftlit.com, or our dedicated Android, 
iOS, and Windows 8 smartphone and tablet apps. You can use the same free Craftlit app to access premium streaming content on the go. Craftlit is and has been made possible by the support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>